Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Just keep doing it until you, you know, find success uh, or until you become tired, disillusioned and broken. But make it. Don't just don't just write it. Write it. Yeah. But then find somebody who wants to, you know, be a cinematographer, find somebody who wants to be a director, find some get a couple of your friends who want to be actors and just make it. Just make it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited to present this part two episode of Victor Levin. If you listen to the first one, you know how inspirational this guy is. Just an incredible man, has done it all, and I'm so grateful to have him. And I'm so grateful to have all of you guys listening, truly. I can't believe how incredible it's been. So keep it up. If you've been listening, thank you for coming back. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for passing it on. Thank you for telling everybody about it. And those first timers, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for subscribing. And I hope that you enjoy this as much as I do. And so as I always do, I like to look at my guest and think of something to say that means something for the episode and ties it all in. And when I think of Victor Levin, I think of a guy who has really, truly done it all. I mean, he's written in television, in film, and he's worked with some of the greatest artists of my generation or any generation. This guy's worked with everybody from George Clooney to Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner to the late Gary Shandling. And now in his latest movie, he's working with Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder. It never stops. And why do these people work with him? They work with him because they feel safe. They work with him because they trust him. They work with him because they know the material is at the highest level. They know that they want to work with him because he gives them the creative freedom and the ability to shine and take his material and even elevate it to a higher level 
if that's possible. And so when I think of Victor Levin and after sitting across from him and hanging out with him, just the wonderful presence that he has, the biting and incredibly powerful intellect and wit that he has is truly unmatched by anybody you'll ever meet. And it shows in everything he does. So all I can think about everybody is if you can figure out a way to create the kind of relationships and do the kind of extraordinary work at the highest levels, it will attract more high-level people from every walk of life into your project because they know and they feel it and they gravitate to you like a magnet. And if you can figure out how to do that and create those kind of relationships through everything you do, you'll have the possibility of the kind of career that Victor Levin has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Firing somebody in the profession when you're a leader of men and women and you're carrying the mantle of being the showrunner, is that one of the most difficult things or does it come easy for you? It's no, of course it doesn't come easy. And of course it's not firing. You know, we have a thing. It's it's asked back. Were you asked back? <laughs> Right, so it's the absence of being asked back, which is very different than being fired, Barry. It's, it's, for example, if you come to a party at my house and you don't come to another party at my house, did I fire you? Oh, of course not. I just didn't ask you back. Uh, and there, there are, you know, there have been a couple of people whom I have not asked back, but in every case, what I it hasn't happened often. But in every case, what I said at the time and what was really true at the time and has been true for me also when I have not been asked back and uh, I imagine is true for many other people. Not every writer can write every show. Not every writer can write every show. You know, there are some that, are, that get in your bloodstream more easily and stay there and where it really does feel second nature after a while and there are some that don't i was really lucky on mad about you because it just on a dna level it was it was pretty easy for me i heard it i felt i heard it pretty well i was confident about what i put down on the page and people seemed to like it so but that's just biological luck that's not uh, being, uh, you know, a, a good writer or not a good writer. That's just this piece of material happens to suit you. And and the other pieces of material have not suited me and would not suit others. And so you have to be able to, as a, you know, a staff writer who goes from job to job, you have to be able to roll with those punches. Otherwise, you're going to get into some sort of existential bog where you go, oh, my God, what if I suck? No, you don't suck. You just... This wasn't the show for you. you. You might be one of those soloists we were talking about a moment ago who will walk out of this job and create a show that's a giant hit or three. And that's happened more than once, you know. So 
Um, people have to be uh, philosophical about it, I think. When's the last time you weren't asked back? Uh, Mad Men was not asked back for uh, season six, worked on season five. All right. I want to go way, way back. Yes, sir. Tell me where you grew up, what your family was like, what the socioeconomic dynamic was, and what was your first inspiration to get in this crazy business? Um, um, my, uh, my dad was a dentist, passed away a few years ago. Uh, he had his office in our house. He had his office was in the downstairs of our house. You could hear the drill in the x-ray machine through the floor, <laughs> like a rattling, like a ah, kind of sound. OK, a few more, you know, doses of radiation tossed out to the family. Thanks, Dad. And then and the drill, which was it was the high speed drill and the low speed drill. And we could tell that you know, the, the low speed drill was like and the high speed drill was sort of. And this was while we were eating dinner, you know, because he, he would work until seven, eight o'clock. Uh, but that was very common in those days that if you were a doctor or a dentist or, a, you know, an orthopedist or whatever, you would have your, you're in the suburb, New York suburbs, you would have your office in your house. Um, my mom was also a musician and a teacher. She passed away also, uh, in her case, four years ago. And, um, you know, she uh, would... would play in in certain smaller symphonies and drive to Westchester sometimes to to teach which meant going over the Hudson River and coming back and so there were you know it was a pretty busy household middle class I mean not fancy uh, but a high premium placed on on doing well in school and uh, trying to be some sort of athlete and you know you trying to be a responsible member of the community all the all the sort of i guess good old fashioned american you know uh third generation immigrant values i suppose were represented in our house I have a younger sister named Merrill who's a um educator in uh uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, where she has founded a school uh, just a few years ago, and, she, and she's also a photographer. So your inspiration in getting in the business, how do you get in this business when your father's a dentist? Also not unrelated to the hometown, because strangely enough, Rockland County, New York, was at the time perfectly located if you were a comedian who worked in the Catskill Mountains, because you could drive up, I believe it was Route 17, and it was an hour and change or something to get to Cutchers and Browns and, and Grossingers. Or you could, when Atlantic City opened, you could drive down the Garden State Parkway in a reasonable amount of time and get to those hotels and work there. So we had a bunch of comedians living in our hometown. And I was, in a couple of cases, friends with their kids. Uh, my, Who were those comedians? Well, uh First and foremost, my dear late friend, Alan Kirschenbaum, oh. who grew up around the block from me, and his dad, Freddie Roman, who used to play touch football with us in the backyard after school and then get in the car and drive to his gigs and do his gig. I want to give respect to Alan <clears throat> Kirschenbaum, one of the greatest showrunners. I mean, his house was 500 yards from my house. Phil Rosenthal, creative, everybody loves Raymond, not a stand-up comic, but also a dear friends of, Al of Alan's. I love Phil Rosenthal. He went to our high school, Clarkstown High School North. He was a year ahead of us. He was 
very inspiring for us because he was so talented and so funny and as an actor and not just as a writer. And uh, But staying on the subject of comedians and comedians' kids, there was another, Morty Gunty, who I believe appears in Stardust in uh, uh, Broadway, Danny Rose. Um, and his his children, our friend uh, Laurie Gunty, was, was about our age and uh, so we were friendly with all Dick Lord was another one. His his kids were in our elementary school. And so you kind of grew up with people who were pretty good at uh, conversation and pretty fast on their feet. And sometimes Freddie Roman would um, take us uh, up to Cutcher's or wherever he was performing and we'd get to stand in the back of the room and watch the show. And a couple of times we'd get to go to the, to the luncheonette afterwards, you know, the, the, the midnight coffee shop where all the comics from all the various clubs would gather at one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning after the late show and just shoot the shit. And that's when you really started to fall in love with the rhythms and you started to isolate what made you laugh and you know what you thought comedy was and there was a speed to it there was a there was a uh, a quickness to the minds and then every so often there would be a joke that would come along that somebody would tell and no one had heard it before i remember one time the joke was uh this had to be like 1970 i don't know what Five, so forget, forgive the datedness of the joke. But the joke was, "How is sixty minutes like a Jewish mother?" They both start with, <laughs> "Okay." So, so th- this gets a huge laugh at the table, you know, from Corbett, Monica, and Morty Gunty. And now the fight is on for who gets to use the joke where, and and the fight about who got to use the joke was funnier than the joke. Why would they fight if somebody said the joke? Exactly. I told the joke. I get to use it. No, you can't. You told that joke, but I heard that joke. If we're going to use that joke, I'm going to use it here. You could use it. There. I'll use it at Brown's. You'll use it. At... And this was the part that really made me laugh was these guys fighting over, you know, fighting over the, the, the use of the, just the just the vitriol. And the but at the same time, they were all friends and brothers. They weren't really fighting, but it sure sounded like a fight. And and I loved it. We had next to our synagogue growing up was Myron Cohen's house. <laughs> I mean, wow. you so you would go to, you know, Yom Kippur services. And on the way out, you would drive past Myron Cohen's house, which was right on the other side of the temple's driveway. Temple Beth Shalom on New Hampstead Road in New City, <laughs> and uh, and Myron Cohen, you know the the basically the father of the story joke, right? I mean, you talk about rhythm guys, talk about guys who just could entrance you with the melodies and the cadences of their stories, using pauses and pronunciation with such specificity and brilliance and just have audiences in the palm of their hands for 20 minutes on the same story you know uh and and so when his hbo on location came out he was a he was a local gentleman so i parked myself in front of hbo and i must have watched that thing 50 times you know so it it did have a lot to do with where we were from who we hung out with you know, in our group, it was it was always a laughter was the currency. It was always about who had the funniest line. You know, wh- where were where were the big laughs to be found in the evening? That's how we chose what to do. You know, uh, so I think it's it's good training. We didn't know it was training at the time, but 
um, Alan and Phil and myself uh, all went into that uh, some version of, the, of this line of work. And, and even the ones who didn't uh, are you can see how funny they are like when they speak at their at their children's weddings and at their at you know sometimes even at funerals unfortunately you can see you know that muscle memory from when we were 11 12 years old um it stays with you so what was your first big break in the business that was alan that was Alan Kirschbaum. Uh, I was I when I got out of college, I went to work for ad agencies writing copy, and I did that for seven years. Uh, worked for Young and Rubicam, BBDO, and a little one called Margiotis Fertitta and Weiss. And it was starting to be a career. You what know, was the biggest campaign you ever worked on? Uh, Jello pudding, probably Bill Cosby. What was the funniest line you ever came up with for an advertisement? Oh God, I don't know. I don't know that any of them were that funny, to be honest with you. Did but, you get to meet Bill Cosby? Oh yeah, we we made a bunch of. Uh, spots together. They were takeoffs on movies. Um, one of them won some awards. It was um, it was a really early in my career, also, so it was a great experience. So these companies, let's say Procter and Gamble, right. they go around to the different companies, right. and each company pitches them a idea. Back then, now you have exclusive contracts. You had them then too. You you would as an agency, you would pitch a piece of business like Procter and Gamble, since that's the example you chose, and other agencies would pitch it too, and then they would select one. What's to stop Procter and Gamble from taking that person's idea, going to you who will do it cheaper, and just say, "Hey, this is what we like here, incorporate." How do they not steal other people's ideas? I mean, ideas? I mean, nothing is to stop them. I, <laughs> I imagine it's doable. It's, perhaps it's even happened. But you know, in theory, once you win the business. You know, the, the work that's being done is your agency's work and the client is purchasing it honorably. I mean, you know, that's how it's supposed to work. Later on in those seven years, were you in the rooms where big companies were coming in and you were trying to get their business? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, you know, you you progress. If you know what you're doing, it was easy to get assignments that were real, that, that actually wound up being recorded and put out over the air. In fact, I think the one of the first things I ever did of any consequence was a radio commercial with Mr. Cosby. There were 23 of them that we recorded in one day. And I remember showing up at the, at the Super Dupe radio studio, which was right next to 285 Madison, where YNR, Young and Rubcam was at the time. And uh, Mr. Cosby came in and he sat down and I'm sitting nicely behind the console. And I said to the producer, you know, where's the director? And he says, there's no director. You're the fucking director. What are you talking about? It's a radio commercial. You think there's a director? Well, yeah, I think there's a director. What? You think there's a guy who's going to walk in here with a with a, with a a scarf and, <laughs> and hug everybody and then we're going to make art together? Yeah, that's what I thought was. Well, no, it's you. Here's your little push this button when you want to, when you have a note for Mr. Cosby. <laughs> so wow. without really knowing what I was walking into that morning, I think I was probably 22, 23, uh, you know, I, I was in a very, 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 you know, rudimentary, small time way uh, learning how to work with an actor and how to get how to how to not just with an actor, but with a mega celebrity and how to sort of 
you know, approach that conversation in such a way that was respectful and productive, that that assured that you weren't making a fool of yourself, uh, that didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of, you know, squelching the parts of the performance that you loved, but but allowed you to keep that while maybe going to something further. And it was um, it was really helpful. And uh, he was very kind and he was very he understood that I was brand new and he was very patient with me. But it's one of those things you never forget just the, that morning. So you're doing that. You're seven years in. Presumably you're making good money at that point. You're successful. The company loves you. And you make the transition away from that. So Alan calls Kirshenbaum. And we had we had written together. We had uh, written um, an episode of a, a syndicated, first-run syndicated sitcom called The New Love American Style. And the episode was called Love and the Fortune Cookie. And I hope that no one has seen it and that no one ever does. This was really not, this was a, to say low budget, very video, you know. Anyway, it was not a good result creatively, but we, you know, we we had sold it. We went in, we pitched it together, we sold it. And we had uh, a comic strip running in National Lampoon magazine, which we would run right together called Not Ripley's Believe It or Not, where we would... Uh, uh, come up with um, fake Ripley's, believe it or not, uh, cartoon ideas and pitch them to the guys there. And they would they would buy four of them and then they'd get an artist who knew exactly how to draw it like it was Ripley's, believe it or not, to put it in the magazine. And so we'd, every month we would look forward to that. And Alan was great at those. You know, he, he was, you know, remember how, you know, they, they, Ripley's Believe It or Not would always have like the punchline portion would always be in bold, you know, right? So, uh, I mean, he would, he would just sit in my office at YNR. He'd come up after work and he'd just, he'd just look up and he'd go, uh, the Saluki is the only breed of dog that does not lick its balls, you know, and, was, and we would laugh and we'd come up with about 15 of those. And then at some point in the month, we would go up to the National Lampoon offices, which were in Midtown, I think, maybe on Fifth somewhere and sit in there and just do this, you know, Moses Maimonides, the ancient Jewish scholar, once constructed an entire scale model of the third temple of David out of foreskin, you know, and all day, all day. This was an hour, uh, an hour and a half of pitching. And uh, uh, so we had had some experience writing together. And of course, we had worked in summer theater together, a theater group that he founded and had known each other and written, you know, plays in 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 history class together and passed them back and forth while we were supposed to be learning about the American Revolution. <laughs> so we were very comfortable, but he had come out here sooner and had been uh, very successful already on, I believe, Dear John and Anything But Love. And now he was the executive producer and sort of co-showrunner, you know, unter-showrunner under Ed Weinberger on Baby Talk. And he called me up and he said, I think I can get you hired. You know, it's going to be a fourth of what you're making and I can't promise you that how it's going to go, but there's a seat for you if, if you want to do it. And I said, great. 
and so I quit BBDO. So you took a huge pay cut. Yeah, and, you know, literally loaded up the car and drove out here. BBDO did not believe that I was leaving to go to a sitcom. They thought I was going to another agency and that I had made the story up. But eventually they believed me. Uh, I, I don't think a lot of people did that in those days. How did it go? It was a disaster. <laughs> you weren't asked back? It was not asked back. Actually, the show, ultimately, the show was not asked back, but Ed had another show to which I was not asked back. <laughs> and and and, uh, and I don't blame him because I really didn't contribute very much. I mean, I tried, but I didn't know what I was doing, you know? You're 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 out there pitching jokes that you think are funny, and it's maybe it's not in the context of an eight month old child speaking. You know, maybe it's maybe that's not the right joke for the show. I didn't know anything. In terms of productivity, I could not argue with his judgment. But he but he but I was not asked not uh, back, but I was not asked to go on to the other show. That so he two had. in a row, you weren't asked back to. So how did you have the mental? Well, I counted it as one. I counted it as not being asked back once because baby talk, I don't remember, but I think baby talk wasn't immediately going back into production, but the other show was, and some of the writers were transferring over, but I was not asked back. How many hits did you take before you caught on to something that you found your voice? Well, Alan hired me again, the following year on Down the Shore. Which was the Lou Schneider show. Which is, yes, and uh, Pamela Adlon and, and Anna Gunn and uh, Tom McGowan and Louis Mandalore and others. There, w when you think about how much talent was on that show, Incredible. I mean, Pamela, you know, what, what she's doing is beyond belief. She's, she has really, she's an auteur. I mean, she is a television auteur. Nobody does what she does. It's singular. It's beautiful. Um, I, I mean, I... I'm so impressed on a, on a weekly basis by her as a writer, as a director, and as always as an actress. I mean, not an inauthentic moment in this woman's work. It's all legit. Incredible. Uh, Anna, you know, Anna's had massive success. Uh, Tom McGowan, always brilliant. And by the way, one of the writers on that show was Phil Rosenthal. And I mean, here's here's somebody who has done more to shape popular culture than just about anybody I can think of. And a great guy. Great guy. And and so, you know, there, there are a lot of people trying very hard on shows. I mean, that's that's the thing to realize. There are a lot of good people trying very hard on shows, on, on all of these shows. And we worked hard. We did the very best we could. Down the Shore went uh, for a little while. I don't remember exactly how long. And in the middle of that production run, uh, I was asked to work on Gary Shandling's show, on uh, the Larry Sanders show, a job which I accepted. And so that was the first, the Larry Sanders show was the first time that I walked into a, you know, a just a world-class operation, which is what it was. I mean, so smart and so funny and so very much itself and unique. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. 
with exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey everybody, I've talked a lot about AquaTrue on this show, the amazing water purification system that's literally a miniature water cooler in your home that purifies the water in a way that no one else has ever figured out how to do. It's this incredibly efficient piece of equipment and it gives you the best tasting water you can ever imagine for pennies. You just take it out of the box, plug it in, put your tap water in it, and it takes out all the bad chemicals and gives you the best and healthiest water you can ever imagine, saving you thousands of dollars each year from buying bottled water in the store. I have one at my house and office, and everyone who uses it orders one, and you should too. Just go to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, and if you act now, you can get $100 off and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had, and never waste another dollar buying bottled water again. Six degrees of separation. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. Sure. Tell me what comes to mind. Could be a okay. sentence, a story, anything. You got it. Ray Romano. Uh, so funny and one of the nicest guys in the world. He was a uh, he was a top stand up in New York when I was dabbling, trying to figure out if it was something that I wanted to do. And uh, I can remember a couple of times when, for no reason other than kindness, he, he took a second to talk to me to to say uh, an encouraging word or two before I went out to perform for two people, one on one side of the room and the other on the other side of the room, and bombed horrifically. You know, Ray was Ray was really a a good a good fella, and he was unflaggingly successful and talented as a stand-up. I mean, every single time I saw him work, he was brilliant and he would, he knew how to adjust his performance to the population of the room. In other words, you don't speak the same way to a room of 300 as you do to a room of 12. But he had those 12 people, you know, in stitches and that's a gift. And a great actor as well. Yeah, I, I'm I'm so impressed with his acting work. I think it's, uh, you know, his his acting work, Paul Reiser's acting work. I mean, these guys are both uh, really, really good at scripted material where it isn't just a question of getting laughs, where you have to inhabit a role and and move your audience. You know, they 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 can both do that so well. Sidney Pollack. Sidney Pollack, well, he, one of my favorite uh, uh, directors of all time. I, I just loved his work. I loved 
the way his movies moved. I loved how they were the very best example to me of studio movies. They were, you know, they were big boned, but they were smart. And I was always absorbed by the story and, and felt uh, that the characters were interesting and unusual and, and that the experience was rewarding. He uh, came to uh, work on an episode of Mad About You and I believe the seventh season. And that was one of the few times I've ever really been starstruck. I mean, it's Sidney Pollack. It's Sidney Pollack. And uh, I was just thrilled, you know. And I think we did three or four takes of his scene and uh, he was great and everybody else in the scene was great. And, you know, we moved on because that's what you do. I mean, you got to shoot the show in one night, right? You can't be sitting there for hours. And and so the lights go out in the set and I go up to Sidney Pollack and I say, Sidney, that was fantastic. Thank you very much. He said, we're done. And I said, yeah. He said, you know, what was it, four take? I said, yeah, but, you know, we got it. It's terrific. And he looks at me and he goes, Okay. <laughs> and I thought, oh no, I disappointed Sidney Pollack. I, I went from from working with this person that I idolized to in some way disappointing him. I can't help it. It's the it's the it's the conditions of the medium. It's not me. I would shoot it all night. I would come in for close ups. I would have a thing. I'd go out the window. I'd boats going by that we could cut away to, but we can't do that. <sighs> Helen Hunt. Oh, gosh. I mean, first of all, working with the two of them, with Helen and Paul, spoils you for all time because their ability to make you look like a good writer is off the charts. I mean, if you sent a decent script over to the stage, the show would come out really good. And if you sent a good script over, the show would would be exceptional and this was because of them it was because of their chemistry both visually and vocally their ability to finish each other's sentences and to offer naturalistic dialogue in which they were very often speaking if not over one another then right alongside one another in such a way that you heard and could laugh at everything but you never felt like you were watching a scripted performance it felt like conversations it becomes a goal right because it's so beautiful it's amazing that 20 years later you're accomplishing that goal again i i don't know if i am but i know i'm trying to i mean that's the that's certainly what i think is you know the the best and i saw it done on a weekly basis with such apparent effortlessness by helen and by paul and 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 also you know they knew exactly where the laughs were they didn't have to be told they knew exactly which ones they could get with reaction with something facial or something with a body movement and they knew where vocal emphasis was needed. They knew where the edit would fall so that they could imagine, you know, the laugh moment, if you will. And they knew how to play it together. And this did not come from tons and tons of conversation. It was just an understanding. They just knew each other's moves. It was it was beautiful. Um, and for a writer, nirvana, because y you just you're never going to get a better trip than that. You're never, ever going to get a better trip than that. And they were, they're also extremely smart people who wanted the shows to be about something and who wanted substance and theme. So you could really take a big full swing. We did a, 
we did an episode sixth season called The Conversation, which was one shot. It was 22 and a half minutes that was all one shot. So, you know, usually you'd have four cameras. What happens if they screwed up? You're dead. Gordon Hunt, Gordon Hunt shot at uh, Helen's dad. Also an extraordinary acting coach. Yes, he was. And, and, and also one of the kindest people you'll ever meet. And he had shot many Mad About Yous and had won, you know, Director's Guild Awards. And uh, he shot another one called Moody Blues in which he staged an entire musical, you know, just gifted and lovely person. But in this case, he had to have uh, a magazine built for the camera in order to hold 24 minutes of film. Could you explain to our audience what a magazine is? So that's the thing that goes on to the camera that holds the film and sends the film through the shutter so that it can be exposed. And there would be people called film loaders who ran out from the underneath the bleachers and you know, gave you the next one and took the last one back. But that wasn't going to work in this case because it was all going to be one shot. So what we had to do was build a giant one and put it on the camera somehow. And that got done. And and then we had to figure out how this frame was going to be populated for 23 minutes in such a way that wouldn't be visually boring. And, you know, we worked out bits with the dog, Murray the dog, and, you know, stuff that they find in cabinets. The idea was they were sitting in front of their child's bedroom while the child was being ferberized, which meant um, taught not to cry uh, by not being paid attention to when it did cry uh, before bedtime. So it was about the torture, the pain of being outside your child's room and being only allowed to go in on certain scheduled, at certain scheduled intervals. And so you've got to kill that time in between intervals, and that there therein lay the conversation, which we, uh, you know, had sort of free reign to go anywhere we wanted to with. And uh, when I suggested it to Paul and Helen, there was not a second in which they said, "Oh my God, we're going to have to learn sixty pages of dialogue at at a throw." They just thought it was a challenge. They thought it was. It was fun and a really good idea. And we had to go to NBC and say, would it be okay if we didn't have a commercial act break in the middle? And they said, yes. Um, so we get there and the audience is packed in. Now, our tapings would routinely go to midnight, 1, 1, 1 30 in the morning. Mm -hmm. This one was over in 30 minutes because they did it on the first take. They were 17 seconds long. Perfect. 17 seconds long. Which is to say, you know, you can't calculate ahead of time how much the audience is going to laugh and you can't talk over their laughter. So we had 17 seconds more laughter than we had calculated. Believe me, their performance was to the second probably exactly what they had done in rehearsal, but you have to leave room for what the audience does. So now I have uh, my friend Bob Levy from NBC sitting in the audience and uh, I have a take that's perfect, but it's 17 seconds long, but it's... NBC and that's a big company and they're a broadcast network so I don't know if it's allowed so I go I go to Bob and I say can I have the can I have 17 more seconds and he was so nice about it considering I had put him on the spot the whole audience is looking at him you know don't you dare to and uh, Bob said yeah we'll figure it out we'll figure it out so we did one more take just to be safe just in case something went wrong with the I don't know what the developing or whatever that take was was almost perfect, not as perfect as the first one. We had two. We sent the audience home. I mean, 
an hour, maybe an hour 15 from the moment they had first sat down. And uh, the next day, talked to NBC. Bob said, okay, you can have the 17 seconds, but you got to get it from Paul Sims, who's running News Radio, which is the show that's on after you. So what do you mean I got to get it from? Call him up, ask him for the 17 seconds. So, okay. So I call up Paul Sims, uh, who I had known from Larry Sanders show. And said, it's Vic, I, I, I need 17. Can I have the 17 seconds? And he says, yes, you can have the 17 seconds on one condition. What's that? You must send me 17 single dollar bills fresh from the bank. And your assistant has to deliver them. So, really? Yep. Then you can have the 17 seconds. Okay. And I sent the assistant to the bank. He gets 17 single fresh dollar bills, drives him over to Paul's house. Paul calls. Yep. You got it. 17 seconds. All yours. Have a nice day. And that was how, you know, but you don't get to any of that stuff unless you can walk into Paul and Helen originally and say, are you willing to learn this much material so that you can deliver it to your standards in one take? You know, you can't do it in chunks. You got, you're going to have to do it like a play and an instant. Yes. So uh, they were wonderful partners. They're still my friends that they're, um, they're people I admire. And, uh, that was a watershed for a lot of us who worked on that show. I mean, that, that was a, uh, a learning experience and, um, and a wonderful high watermark. George Clooney. George Clooney worked on uh, Baby Talk at the very beginning when I was there. Your first job. Yeah. Uh, what a nice guy. Was, he was so good in that part. I mean, it's, it was not a good show, but he was really good in it. I mean, as as good as you could be with that material. He made it real. He always uh, met us for drinks after show night at what was then the Columbia Bar and Grill. Uh, hung out with the writers, had some laughs. Very kind, funny, good person, and uh, I haven't had uh, much contact with him at all since then, but I have always rooted for him, and I was always so glad to see his success. Yoko Ono. She also was a uh, Mad About You uh, guest star. There was an episode in which Paul Buckman breaks John's piano, uh, that was how Mad About You was at the end. I mean, you walk on the set and there's Yoko Ono, you know. I don't think I talked to her, but there she was. Gary Shandling. Gary was wonderful. Gary was uh, one of the great uh, in-room writers I've ever seen. I mean, just as a pitcher of material in the room, he had as high a batting average as anybody I've ever seen. He, he was just a machine and it was never the same kind of thing. It was always surprising. Um, and uh, I liked him very much. He, he remember once he, he came by the last time we spent any, had any substantial visit, he happened to come by the Mad About You uh, edit room. This was years later. And Gary, Paul and I sat around while we were cutting a show. And that was a lot of fun. That was one of those moments where you go, okay, this is pretty good. Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks did a bunch of Mad About Yous. Wildly funny, encyclopedic mind, tireless, energetic, uh, very kind person, you know, took us to lunch. Here's how you tip. Here's how you tip in the Sony commissary. Watch this, you know, lessons, life lessons. Um, he was, uh, he was a ball of energy. He didn't have, he didn't have, um, you know, any 
patience for self-editing or for uh, small concerns. He wanted the show to be funny. He wanted to deliver. He wanted it to be great. He wanted the audience to be thrilled. You know, he had uh, uh, great performers' instincts in addition to great producers' instincts. He's so smart. He had he had reasons for stuff. He was so fast. I mean, he sometimes he would make Paul laugh in the middle of the scene. And you would see in the dailies that Paul was laughing. <laughs> and, you know, we would, we would all, it was so funny that we didn't want to not use it, even though people were laughing. And, and, but you couldn't not laugh, you know. And Anne Bancroft used to come to the tapings and she knew every word. She would sit in the front row of the tapings and sometimes you could see her mouthing the dialogue as he went. And they were crazy about each other. And it was a beautiful thing to see. And, uh, uh, Mel sang in our show and he did all sorts of physical stuff. I mean, that's a moment where you say, you know, there are people who are just operating at another level and and people are where they are for a reason. Sid Caesar. Sid Caesar uh, did a Mad About You. He played, um, we did a show... Uh, called Citizen Buckman, in which Shecky Green, the comedian, plays an <laughs> uncle who, uh, while making a video with Paul, uh, has a heart attack. And his last words are, who, moose? <laughs> and the uh, episode is about trying to figure out what was meant by who, moose, which wound up being the serial number on the bottom of the lens, which you don't find until <laughs> find out until the end. And... and uh, and Mr. Caesar played one of the relatives who swoops in uh, and has a bit of a monologue at the at the uh, funeral uh, for Shecky Green's character. David Steinberg was the rabbi who couldn't remember <laughs> any of the relatives' names. And and it's, if I if I really if I really want to laugh, I just watch <laughs> David David's part in that. So anyway, as many episodes did this show required some rewriting the week of and it happened to be a week that the new york times was there doing a story on the show and at one point when paul mr caesar and i were working on his monologue paul had to go to the stage and mr caesar and i uh continued to work on his monologue which um you know he, I'm not sure that it was the most um, I'm not sure he and I had the same basic idea for what the monologue should be and of course you know uh, nothing but respect for him he's a legend he's a mythic figure so I'm not gonna fight with him or argue with him I'm just gonna try and do what he wants to do in a way that I know serves the story but that's a bumpy process and uh, the Times reporter is there, so I'm aware of that also. And the, we get through it, and the monologue comes out fine, and Sid's great doing it, and it's really funny in the show, and he's happy. And But then the article comes out that Sunday or whatever it was, and, and it goes back to that moment when Paul left to go to rehearsal, and it said something like, uh, Riser returned to the stage for rehearsal. Uh, Levin and Caesar continued to work on the monologue, to no avail. Oh, <laughs> I just said, to no avail. And uh, I remember my mother reading it saying, wait, there's no avail? <laughs> Why isn't there a veil? <laughs> You're not good at this? There should be some avail. But it was so damning. It was so, you know, four syllables. And that's just to know. That's it. That was my afternoon. To no avail. 
<laughs> Carl Reiner. Carl also in also in uh, Mad About You a couple times. Um, so funny, giant. I mean, he's tall, and the comedy comes from way up there, and it's so brilliant. I mean, you you are uh, you, you're just part of it is you're picturing what he and Mel would have been like, you know, 10, 20, 30 years earlier. Part of you can't help but but imagine that because you're feeling the power and the speed of this intellect, right? And the, just the sheer comic chops. And you're thinking, this is ungodly. I mean, this is not, what must they have been like when they were, you know, whatever, 45, 50, when they were, you know, because even at whatever he was then, it was, it was, uh, thoroughly thoroughly impressive i mean just so strong you know you you know because you were in the business they would refer to comics yeah he's a strong comic he's not a strong you know people talking about this comic or that comic he's a strong the word strong comes up a lot in the stand-up business and that's what you think of when you think of carl strong in the scene strong in the writing process you know strong in front of the audience just just like the backbone of the empire kind of guy. I just want to share another groundbreaking product with you. It's a revolutionary air purifier that will change the way your home operates. And I'm talking about the air doctor. The air inside our home can be up to a hundred times more polluted than the air outside. But with the air doctor, you don't have to worry about it as it removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and so many other contaminants that circulate throughout our homes. Till now, the only thing that could come close to this product were systems that cost thousands of dollars. But now you can get the Air Doctor for a fraction of the cost, normally $600. And if you don't believe me, check Amazon. But for a limited time, I can give you 50% off and save you $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and get rid of all the bad toxins in your home. I'm telling you, I have this product. It really, really works. So get one now and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air you can ever imagine. The two main characters are your film Destination Wedding. Yeah. When you do the first take and you see them play the characters with the voice they use and the mannerisms they use, was it exactly the way you envisioned it? Almost. Uh, I, I gave basically one note. Small and fast. That was the one note. I wanted it to sound like conversation. I didn't want it to sound like people were playing a scene. Not that they did, but I wanted to push it even farther in that direction. Naturalistic. You know, don't worry about landing the jokes. Don't worry about keeping things in the clear. Talk over one another. Be, you know, uh, just a, a little ensemble. And... um so smaller and faster you know that there's a lot of talking in this movie make it go fast and there's no reason ever to be showy not that they are i mean they're not keanu is a marvelous subtle performer and he heard that note once and she heard it once and they never had to hear it again i mean everything they did was was a small and fast and so after that it was just 
a tiny, you know, a little ad hoc thought here and there, but nothing major. They, um, sh she's extremely well suited to this material. And I think she felt that from the beginning, I suppose I should say the material is extremely well suited to her. You know, there's a certain Winona-ness that she has, which uh, I think was, was great for her character. And so there's not a lot of adjusting to do there. I knew she was inside the character. I knew she understood the themes that um, the character is, is the questions that the character is wrestling with. So you know you 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 want people to do what they uh naturally do as much as possible so that they're not thinking about it so that they can just you know grip it and rip it and uh i think less is more in terms of direction also you have to remember you're asking people to learn 90 pages of of script and sometimes i mean on a couple of days we shot 17 18 pages how many days were you shooting for? It was a nine and a half day shoot. You shot for nine and a half the whole days. Thing. That was the whole thing. That's how you get a movie done at a budget that gives it a fighting chance to not cost its investors money. Nine and a half days. Yeah. How many locations? I, you know, fair number, but there were long scenes and there were, you know, a lot of things to learn. So when you sat down to play you know the for example those those scenes that are shot in the mo in the hotel room you, you gotta know whatever it is 16 pages of material you know or more that day you gotta know it like it's a play so you're asking them to do a tremendous amount of work to begin with and you're you're grateful for that and so in in that situation especially i think you want to keep the notes clear and simple and if you say small and fast that's clear and simple you know then you're the benefit of their great biology their own great chemistry the fact that they've known each other all these things you're the beneficiary of, of those things uh, you can't create chemistry on film it, it, it's there's no note that you can give be have better chemistry no they have to have that naturally and they did so all of those things accrue to you into the movie and at some point your job becomes to you know stay out of the way separate the best from the not quite the best you know give some encouragement here and there some small thoughts here and there but keep keep your eye uh, you know on the big picture make sure that um spirits are good that energy is high and that we're steaming towards the goal we need to get to which is to be finished by friday your proudest moment in show business well i think the the proudest uh, moment was the tribeca premiere of five to seven uh which went extremely well that was your film before this one yes very different than this um but I had no idea how that was going to go. You know, you never know how it's going to go. You, you, you know, thank you for all the nice things you, you said about the film. And I'm really glad that you enjoyed it and that you got all the small stuff. But I, I don't know what audiences are going to say. I don't know what critics are going to say. I have no idea. And, you, and I didn't know it at the time either. But when you're sitting in the theater and it's the first time it's being shown for any anything resembling a you know, a, an audience, the, the editing suite doesn't count. Uh, and there's, well, whatever there were, 400 people. 
I can't describe to you the level of nerves, but also the level of joy when you can feel them ha having fun and, you know, sort of locking into the story and, and laughing and, and being moved, you know, that was, um, that was great. I, for me, if I don't get to, to see the audience's reaction, I feel that the process is unfinished. It's one of the reasons I always try for a theatrical release for my movies, even if it doesn't, they don't stay in the theaters for very long, because I think it's important to be able to sit with them a couple of times and know how people felt, you know, when they watched it. And when you're watching one at a time, two at a time, it's not so good for comedy. Plus, you're not going to invite me to your house to watch you watch it, right? I mean, you might, but other people won't, strangers. So uh, that was the, that was probably the night. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Oh, man. I You know, I don't... I'm sure it's... I'm sure it's a script that I haven't been able to get going that I really think is good. I don't want to talk about, you know, what it is because it might get going and I don't want to, you know, put the cart before the horse. But um, there are always ideas that for whatever reason can't get traction, but you believe in your in your soul that that they're good and you can't leave them alone. You know, you have to keep pushing with them because you just, it's like an exorcism. You have to get it out into the, into the, into the public record you have to put it before people you, you can't you can't just lay it aside some you can and you see the flaws and you say okay just as well that that one didn't go but others they just keep they just keep gnawing at you you know and and that's a that's not a you know that's not an overwhelming it's not a an event a single crisp event that happened one afternoon that you know but it is a um it, it's a a big thing nevertheless and uh you fight sometimes for years you know to get things finally um going five seven took seven years from the time i wrote it to the time we shot so it, it's i'm sure it's i'm sure it's that in terms of how it fuels you you know for as long as th this lasts the thing that i want to do when i wake up in the morning is write and then make a story that I think is really good and that people will enjoy. And when they don't go, when there's an idea like the one I just mentioned where you just can't understand why you, you can't get it out the door, I think it's I think you do a little bit channel that anger and you say, all right, this next one you're not going to be able to say no to because I, I think I know why you and I'm going to, you know, so there's a little there's a little bit of it does put a little bit of fuel uh, in the tank, but I would rather not be fueled that way. I'd rather have the one, you know, that I want really out there. And I trust myself to stay hungry anyway. Last question. What advice do you have for the young person growing up in a small town? Maybe their parent is working out of the house yeah, and don't really know what kind of direction you're going to go to or what you're going to do. But for some reason, how do they get to the next level and have the kind of career that you've had? Uh, there are lots of options open to people now that weren't open to me. I mean, when when even though, you know, we, we had all our comedians, children as friends, and even though, you know, Myron Cohen's house was next to the synagogue, show business still seemed like a world away. 
it, w- it was on another planet, show business. And actually getting into it seemed like much more of a pipe dream than it does now. I mean, now you can become a YouTuber by simply putting enough videos on YouTube that you start to attract attention and become uh, someone of whom these things are demanded. I would say the the best advice is don't just write, but also make. Now, uh, 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 by which I mean, you know, go out and make a short film. It isn't anywhere near as expensive as it used to be. Go out and make videos. Find a place to post it where people can see it. You know, don't don't require uh, a reading from a person in power. You know, don't don't uh, turn someone into a guardian of the gate. Just knock the gate over with something great. You know, make it. Go find the camera. Use your phone. Whatever it takes. Make it because it that will show off your writing. I mean, much better than a script will. No one's going to, if they love the video, they're going to realize that somebody wrote it. And, you know, who knows? You might even attract some attention as a director or a writer or a DP or whatever else you want to be along the way. So I would say avail yourself of the technology and the smallness, the relative smallness of the world, the accessibility that is possible now that wasn't possible then. Avail yourself of those things. And... Just keep doing it until you, you know, find success uh, or until you become tired, disillusioned and broken. But, you know, at least you're not assembling a pile of scripts in the corner of your room like I was and like the guys who, you know, were were starting out with me and the women were. I mean, they just uh, become documents that are graded like a test by somebody who happens to be in a position of power that's a much weaker position for you to put yourself in than hey i got 73 gazillion views on youtube or hey here's a short which you can put in your you know which you can click on and watch and and we won't have to speculate as to whether or not this story is well constructed or i know what i'm doing because you'll either be laughing or you you know caught up in the suspense in the story or you won't and if you are, then you can conclude that, you know, uh, I might have some potential. So that's what I would say. Make it. Don't just ju- don't just write it. Write it, yeah, but then find somebody who wants to, you know, be a cinematographer. Find somebody who wants to be a director. Find some, get a couple of your friends who want to be actors and just make it. Thank you so much, Vic. Thank you. It was really fun and great questions and so nice to see you. And so everybody check out Destination Wedding. It's going to be incredible August 31st. Vic, you're fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Via Vessel, July 21st, 2017. The heading reads, Cindy, I'm a woman, and I listen. Five stars. And the comment reads, The first time I listened to this podcast was when my boyfriend told me I should listen to the Larry Moss episode, that it would change my life. It did. 
I listened to it three times in a row. I listened to it on one half speed and transcribed it onto my computer. I would then reread my favorite passages on the way to an audition or when I was feeling especially motivated in my craft. I have since then listened to every industry standard that has come out and I've also been playing catch up, listening to old episodes I missed. There is so much good to say, I'm sure I'll return and write some more. But for now, I want to say this. I just listened to the Cindy Shupak episode. Cindy, I'm a woman, and I listen to Barry. So I might just be one of the two. But hey, maybe I'm the third. Also, I listened to it at one and a half speed, too. Amazing episode, Barry. Thanks for doing this. You don't know how much it's affected my life as an artist for the better. Much love, Olivia. Olivia, thank you so much. You are definitely a winner. And that wraps up part two of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Wondery. Check out their lineup of some of the greatest podcasts in the world at Wondery.com. And Aquatrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life and instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And Good Company, an extraordinary web series on YouTube that host Scott Bowling created where you can watch music interviews with incredible artists talking openly about their journey in the music business. If you like a great in-depth music interview where you can hear about each album in chronological order and what the artist experienced along the way, this is the show for you. Interviews with incredible talents like Michael Sweet from Striper, Clinton Lejean from Seven Dust, Brian Head Welsh from Corn, Elias from Nonpoint, Mikey from Islander, Sonny from POD, and Rich Ward from Fozzy and Stuck Mojo, just to name a few. Check out Good Company on any social media outlet under Good Company with Bowling or go to www.scottgoodcompany.com. And finally, Boku Superfoods, the purest, most potent, and delicious certified organic, kosher, and vegan superfood blends on the planet. 
Boku Superfood is changing the game for thousands of people in 65 countries with their incredible formulated powers that you just add any liquid to and make the healthiest drinks or smoothies in the world. Just go to BokuSuperfood.com. That's B-O-K-U superfood.com. Look for the three-pack trial. Enter the promo code Barry at checkout. Just pay a minimal shipping fee and get a full week's supply of Boku Superfood for free. I guarantee you'll look and feel better and understand why Boku is the number one family-owned superfood company in the world. And here's a preview of the next very special episode. Jim Jeffries. A slogan that I try to live my life by, which is easier said than done, is chase the dream, not the competition. Because you can really, especially in stand-up comedy, you can get held up on how did that guy get a show? How did that guy get a show? And you can forget that there's people who are saying the same thing about you. Once you clear that clutter out of your head that you, you just focus on your career and don't worry what everyone else is getting, you'll be moving a lot faster. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drive that fancy car, all the people love you. You're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.